Hello and welcome back. You're joining us today for our 21st episode of Opportunity Thrives. I'm your host, Jason Mitchell, and on this show, we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students. Through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive and lasting change. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on our show. Please click on the podcast notes to leave us a review, to provide any input, or send us any questions. You can also reach us at info at opportunitythrives.com. On our show today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Monica Burns, a former New York City School District teacher. She's also an Apple Distinguished Educator and the founder of ClassTechTips.com. Monica was part of her school's leadership team and was a vocal advocate for bringing one-to-one technology into her classrooms. Monica has presented to teachers, administrators, and tech enthusiasts at numerous national and international conferences, including South by Southwest, EDU, ISTE, FETC, and EduTech. And she's a regular contributor to Edutopia. Monica also visits schools across the country to work with pre-K through 20 teachers to make technology integration exciting and accessible. So thank you so much for joining us today, Monica. We look forward to the many insights that you'll be able to share with our audience. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. So let's start with some questions. How are education leaders addressing these unparalleled changes in education? Well, right now, there's so many things to consider. And obviously, as folks are looking back on what felt good or what worked with quick shifts to remote learning in the spring, you know, they really use that information to inform some of their decisions for the fall. But at the same time, there are so many uncertainties still about what the best thing is when it comes to having students in a particular place or space. And I'm definitely not a health expert by any means. So my work has been side by side with educators and folks at a variety of levels, really thinking through what is best in these times where we're doing things very differently with technology than how we might have used technology in the classroom in the past. There is no easy answer in this. I've spoken with a few teachers lately, and they tell me that they have many competing agendas when it comes to instruction and that they're thinking about things like equity of access or student engagement or the learning gaps that their kids have or just even the the stress and the the trauma that their students are showing, not to mention coupling that with just the regular day-to-day instruction. So what are teachers prioritizing right now and is that going to change over time? Well, just as you mentioned, there's so many things that were already on everyone's plate with or without technology integration in the classroom and with or without you know, our current distance learning and remote learning challenges. So right now, I think when it comes to priorities, what folks are really thinking about come kind of down the list, like you mentioned. So there's things that as a classroom teacher, you can consider, you can address, you can be supportive of, but maybe out of your direct control with systemic issues like access with whether or not your students have wireless connectivity at home, whether or not they can use a school issue device, the reliability of that device. And I say those all not to be um, negative or feeling pessimistic about it, but I think it's really important to acknowledge and not pretend like those aren't big issues that are logistical issues that children and families are facing in all parts of the country. So from a teacher perspective, what I'm hearing when working with folks and talking to folks is really navigating some of those challenges that are day-to-day logistical challenges that make implementation work or make it 
very hard for someone to even connect. So some of those pieces are coming first before even we're really looking at the curriculum or engagement. Like, can we connect? Is there reliability there? And what does that look like? I think is really at the top of of people's lists. And then making sure that students have a sense of community if they're learning at a distance and there are some teachers that are leading concurrent models. So they are leading a physical classroom with students in that space in school. And they are also supporting students who might be live streaming or checking in part of that homeroom class, if you will, but just the delivery is very different for them at home. So giving feedback, back and forth from one group of students to another if they're, say, working on a project or making sure that the students who are at home or perhaps participating in a hybrid model still have that sense of a classroom or community, I think is right there as we look kind of down the list of what needs to be prioritized or what folks are just prioritizing naturally because they know you know what is best for kids. And then, of course, the, the content and the engagement concerns are definitely front of mind. So there's a lot of things on already full plates that if we were talking together last fall um, would have been front of mind and now are still just amplified um, in our current environment. It was really interesting. I was speaking with a parent last night and they said that they appreciate what the teacher does more than ever. And I think if anything good comes out of this, it's that that realization of the load that's on uh, teachers' plates and just how incredibly valuable they are. I hope so, you know, when it comes to these pieces, because, you know, I think that there was a lot of love and support early on. And now that, you know, what I'm hearing from some teachers that I, I speak to is a lot of, you know, I shouldn't say a lot, but some pushback from families who might be feeling frustrated just with the general kind of climate of continuing what might have seemed like a novelty at first. And a lot of times it's the classroom teachers who feel the brunt of that frustration when there's nothing in their power that they can do, even at a school level, right? So that decision that's being made by someone else, they're just the messenger, right? They're just that frontline person taking that kind of customer service style um, feedback from a family that might be having a, a tough day. So there's a lot of things that, you know, I'm seeing when it comes to those kind of relationships. Uh, our, our teachers are clearly heroes. They are frontline soldiers. And I just, I, I, I just can't say how much we appreciate them enough. So thank you all. For all teachers are listening. Thank you. It was really interesting in the, in the fall, we saw districts come back with a variety of different return to school fall plans. And for some of the schools and for some of the districts, they were really effective. Some really struggled with it. What would you say has been key to the success for those districts who were more effective at rolling out these programs. So many of the schools that have found success, even going back to the spring, and I use success kind of with a a lot of caveats there, right? When we talk about doing the best that we can in a very challenging situation. So the ones that felt maybe of a less traumatic shift or there weren't as many hiccups along the way, even in the spring were folks that already had some established routines for technology integration. So they were using Google Classroom school-wide or their district had made an investment and professional development and getting everyone set up for using something like Microsoft Teams or, you know, there was a pocket of third grade teachers that were really passionate about using a tool like Seesaw. So I give those examples less because it's about the tool, but more about just that 
systemic use of a learning management system. Everyone's using it. There's common vocabulary from all levels within a school and families were already comfortable in those spaces. So there were schools in the spring and even just individual classrooms that their transition was a little bit less bumpy because they had certain routines in place using those systems and they could just kind of scale it up, right? Or or embrace it or lean in a little bit more. And so schools over the late spring into the summer that I saw really making a, a thoughtful or strategic commitment to thinking forward into the fall and, and the unknowns that were at that point very clear really leaned into having a centralized place that was going to be a hub for all the stuff, right? So communication, assessment, um, getting resources out to students and having that streamlined so that if you are a parent and you have a third and a fifth grader in the same school, they're not in different places necessarily, right? You're not logging in to check in, right? They're all kind of using similar things a different ways. So that's one thing that I noticed, um, you know, in my conversations and of course, you know, my work with certain schools, you know, when I was brought in over the summer, perhaps to lead a webinar or a series of workshops, you know, we really wanted to make sure it was in context of the platforms that a district or school was really committing their energy to, because even though having autonomy as a teacher is important when it comes to making certain decisions and choosing different things for different groups of students. All that is essential and and still happening in so many places. Having a centralized space where everyone knows what's going on and can give support as needed is really crucial. You you mentioned a few stakeholders in this, and and I want to dig a little bit deeper into that question. So for those districts who were successful, you talked about that key. Um, What are they doing differently? And how does that look and feel for the students and for the teachers and their parents? So a lot of the schools that I've been talking to or working with, you know, they're really listening and asking questions of all of those stakeholders, right, that we're talking about here. So they're pivoting, they're reacting to that information, right? And that was something that was happening early on. And now they're being more proactive and saying, you know, I'm listening not just to make a a shift, right, or, or pivot or tweak something, but I'm listening knowing that I'm planning for this moving forward. And I want to bring that into plans throughout the rest of the school year. And even though there are so many unknowns with all of these pieces, and again, you know, I'm now no health expert or, or here to leverage any sort of recommendation for what should be open or how it should be open or best practices for that piece. But there is now a an understanding of what these different models can look like so that plans can be made that might be able to shift. And, and part of that best practice. I think that, you know, I've been hearing from folks that maybe their morale is a little bit better or they're just feeling more energized about certain things is that aspect of listening, right? And taking action based on that information. Excellent. So you, um, you've had the benefit of working with districts across the the country and the teachers and and talking about how how to integrate these tools into uh, their classrooms, into and outside of their classrooms. And you are clearly an ed tech curriculum expert. So what do you think that some districts are doing right when it comes to digital curriculum, which may be a new tool for them? Well, one piece that I think, you know, around the curriculum component is just prioritizing and saying that our days are structured differently and that's okay because this is all different. And so one thing that I've been noticing with folks that, you know, have 
found things to feel more successful is that they are not trying to replicate a traditional school day and they are instead rethinking what that day looks like. So it doesn't mean that they're throwing out the curriculum or the standards, right? or anything like that. It's just they're rethinking what that instruction and delivery looks like. They're being thoughtful about synchronous or asynchronous learning opportunities. And I think that is really important because there's, you know, and the comparison I've often shared with folks when when talking about this, especially at the secondary level, it's a little easier to for us to kind of think about that um, substitution or just replication of what was happening in a traditional school, you know, there's always something to be said about the challenges of an 11th grader having to go to six different classes over the course of the day with six different teachers all year long, right? When we think about students who are in an undergraduate or graduate degree, we're not asking them to navigate that many different courses or work with that many different instructors or classmates. And so if we are in this opportunity now, you know, where that is happening more digitally, right? It's not quite as easy for someone to walk down the hall or a bell to ring and then physically switch spaces, right? To interact with that next set of coursework. So that's one conversation I know I've been having with people who are looking at their schedules. And this is really easier said than done when everyone is very kind of set in a certain vision of what secondary education looks like. So I don't want to say that lightly or to be dismissive of, you know, the energy that it takes to make something like that happen. But those are the kind of things that I'm hoping folks will rethink a bit as we move forward and say, how can we take what we've done traditionally with curriculum to a digital space? It may be more around rethinking delivery, rethinking organization of time, um, as well as what it looks like for both asynchronous and synchronous instruction. I, I had this conversation with a group of about 20 teachers a couple of days ago, and there was this almost angst and frustration because they were trying to take their digital curriculum tools and use them in the same way. They were trying to recreate sort of their traditional classroom in a virtual and a hybrid environment, and you could you could feel the frustration. And we we shifted the conversation to focus on the mindset and say like this is going to change your role a little bit. It'll change it to focus on developing relationships with your students and letting the digital curriculum do some of the heavy lifting on instruction. And that was sort of this, there was this epiphany, this light bulb moment. Are you seeing those uh, happen with other uh, teachers and educators? Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of folks, when I'm saying this sort of restructuring piece, and I know you just mentioned how you're hearing it, right? This is not something that is a huge kind of thing that I've just thought of of myself, right? By any means when I say, hey, how about we rethink this, right? This is something that teachers are, are have been saying for a while. And now they're in a position where they're noticing more concretely, like look at what the benefits might be, or look at what we can do here within this digital space. But I think one of the important thesis to acknowledge is that everyone can have these aha moments, but unless folks in certain positions can really make this change happen at a classroom teacher level, right? You can't change the day of all of your students, right? But you do have the opportunity to say, if I do have the space to rethink what my weekly objectives look like, or if I can look at my goals together with my department or grade level team and make some decisions about prioritizing these pieces or leaning deeper into certain areas as opposed to just surface level content, you know, that may be something that folks in a classroom environment have a bit more agency with, but it doesn't mean that um, they can't bring these concerns or, you know, 
highlight these conversations that they may be having in those spaces to folks who can say, you know what, I am going to restructure the day, or we are going to make this big decision for the 900 students in our building. And that, you know, can really be great if you have folks that are already expressing those observations to just help with, with buy-in for a big shift like that. So we've talked a little bit about the the more tactical uh, granular perspective. I'm going to pull it up a little bit and thinking about what we experienced in the spring and the fall, what's your short list of things? Maybe it's a policy or a strategy or even expectations that you think will become part of best practices for education, even when the, the pandemic has left us. So right now, one thing that I've noticed, and you might have noticed this anecdotally as well, is that you know there are students who are doing very well working remotely. They prefer it, right? They had a choice in some districts this fall, and they chose it not because of health and safety or family concerns related to um, the pandemic, but because they felt like they could be more successful or they felt successful in the spring and wanted to continue that into the fall. So one thing I'm anticipating as we move forward is that districts will rethink what a virtual school option looks like for certain members of their district. And that's nothing new, right? That's something that's been happening in smaller pockets in different districts where it's been offered, um, sometimes for students who may have certain medical accommodations or family needs. And so that's something that I anticipate being much more widespread as we move forward um, and away from you know our current our current challenges. So that's something I'm definitely watching because I think you're going to have more and more families that say, you know what, this is the right fit for us. We want to be maybe mobile for a year or two as opposed to staying in one place, or we want to have a more flexible work and life balance if you have more families um, where the families um, are working from home and they have that level of flexibility as well. So, you know, this is very different than homeschooling, right? With the, I've heard other people say with a capital H homeschooling, right? In the more formal way that we would have thought of last fall. And that is something that I think you're going to see people investigating if it's going to be good for them. They might not want to be a homeschooling parent in the sense of leading the curriculum and and checking all the boxes and making sure things are good in, in that way that a homeschooling family um, may want to continue to do in the way they have in the past. But I think these virtual school or remote learning options are things that families are going to expect to see um, in their district. So you started talking about the future. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that crystal ball out and ask you about uh, the, the future of education just in in general. Um, how do you think that the pandemic is gonna change what schools look like, and and maybe even a short term basis and a longer term basis? I think there's going to be a very big impact on teacher turnover and the number of educators that go into this profession. I think that's something not a lot of people are talking about right now. The attrition rate, I think, is going to continue to be really high over the next few years of folks who are just not feeling supported and are moving out of the profession either for early retirement because it's just the natural pattern of their retirement or because they're doing a career change. So I think in the future, one thing you're going to see is that being a big struggle. It's already a struggle in different parts of the country. And I think the pandemic's pushing that very far um, in that direction of there being more teacher shortages um, that will pop up over the next few years. Um, One thing that I think from a and of a school-based perspective um, will be an increased use of technology across the board, um, especially for districts right now that are investing in the hardware and 
investing in the networks at their schools, um, in their community as well, to make sure that homes and families are connected or have access. I think that's something that's going to continue to to scale, um, especially if there's continued professional development in that space, if educators um, are seeing success right with students navigating those spaces. So I think those are, are two areas that I know I'm watching, which is going to be what I imagine a, a significant teacher shortage, as well as an increased use of technology in traditional classroom settings if we get back to that sort of view. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, I spoke with a superintendent who was talking about he's being pushed in ways he's never been pushed before. And he said, you know, I'm focusing on, you know, the ventilation of an older building. I'm talking about uh, social distancing within our transportation system or providing meals um, in a a virtual environment. I mean, he talked about things that he had never, ever dealt with. And and I want to I want to continue down that vein. And you're an education advocate and if you could advocate for something that maybe it's uncomfortable but it's it's outside of the the bounds of what we've normally been pressing for um but it would be either necessary or beneficial to to help our students succeed what would you advocate for well one thing that has come to the forefront, especially this spring. I'm not hearing as much conversation around it right now, but as an educator, you know, it was no surprise to me having taught in a Title I school, just how many students depended on school for food security. And right now, that's not something I'm hearing as much conversation around. And again, you know, I'm not in the classroom, so I'm not at a school that's that's tackling that in an everyday way. But that's something that I'm hoping more folks will will talk about is this need to really think through what a school's role is within a community. If it's not the school, what other sort of community resources are really there and available to make sure students have a successful school day, no matter where their mode of delivery of instruction might be. So if there is more of a shift to remote or hybrid environments, really placing an emphasis on the importance of the community aspect, right, which can go alongside with that too. I want to ask you a question that I don't want it to come up as, as tone deaf because I, I, there has been immeasurable loss and tragedy and uncertainty, but we've also seen some good things come out of this, some really innovative, exciting things that are good for our kids. What are some of those silver linings that you have seen that have come out of this? Well, one thing that, you know, in any time where someone is kind of pushed outside of their comfort zone, and I think that's something that has happened in so so many of us in so many ways, right, <laughs> this year, right, um, to put it very mildly, you know, one thing that this has um, asked people to do is to think about some of the tools and resources they might have had access to kind of all along or for the past several years, um, but now we're being in a situation where this is the only option, right? And so I think that's really increased folks' vocabularies for what is possible. So I would say that's probably the biggest kind of nice thing in my conversations with people is that they are asking much better questions about what is possible with their students. Um, You have school leaders who are asking tough questions that I don't know that they would have asked before about um, data security and privacy and and equity and access that maybe just were not front of mind that have been pushed front of mind. And even from a professional learning standpoint, so I am typically on the road about 30% of the time, 40% of the time, right, working with schools and organizations and different groups. And I've always said to folks, we can do do a webinar, you know, and a webinar is 
were always part of my work. Um, and they have been for probably a decade, you know, almost a decade. And so now it's, I think one of the silver linings from a professional learning standpoint is people are more comfortable. They understand what to expect and they have a certain level of expectation for what they're going to get if they sit down for an hour in a virtual way. So I think the increased vocabulary, the increased understanding of what is out there and available um, is definitely something worthy of celebrating, right? Even though there are a lot of really serious components that are are happening at the same time. Well, I want to say thank you um, really sincerely. Thank you for supporting our teachers and and the students that they serve. It's, It's such critical work and it's really challenging. Thank you for your time and your expertise today. This has been fascinating. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me, for asking such fantastic questions about an important topic that I know is is front of mind for so many many folks in our space. Well, it sure is. And thanks for joining us today. And our Opportunity Thrives listeners, thank you for your time today. If you're enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you would take just a minute of your time and share your feedback on our show by providing a review either on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you listen to. Please reach out to us with questions or comments at info at opportunitythrives.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and we will see you next time.